This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, hosted by the BatmanUniverse.net. Check out everything related to Batman and the entire Bat family at the BatmanUniverse.net, including news and original content related to comics, movies, television, merchandise, video games, and more. Also, check out some of the other unique podcasts that TBU has to offer. Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at thebatmanuniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show. In 2008, a podcast was created with one goal. To bring Bat fans around the world news related to movies, comics, video games, television, merchandise, and so much more. And now, the Batman Universe Podcast has returned. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest TVU podcast. I'm Dustin. Joining me today is Adel and Scott, and we have kind of a mishmash, some current event topics. Um, the main the main thing here, and the title of the episode is going to be about the reveal of the Batgirl costume, which we knew was coming. I said that on the last episode about how it was only a matter of time before we saw the Batgirl costume. We're going to talk about that, but there's also a couple of other news things that just popped up. Conveniently, we're recording this a couple days later than we normally do, and the two things, the other two things we're going to talk about happen to pop up in since since we would typically record on a Sunday, they have popped up since. One of them has to do with uh, Joss Whedon, and uh, unfortunately, the Justice League film that I'd rather not talk about, but we're going to talk about it because it is a news event. And uh, the other thing that we're going to talk about is. More, let's just put it this way, it's probably going to turn into a rant for me, um, but I'll be honest, uh, I, I'm, I'm having some feelings about uh, a certain announcement that DC Comics made today, and it's 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 annoying and upsetting, mostly because it, it kind of, in my opinion, takes a crap on the Batman universe in some ways, and I, I know that's probably an extreme that some people are going to be like, ah, I can't wait to hear what he's going to talk about, but we'll get to that. Um so let's talk about the Batgirl photo. So Batgirl is the Batgirl film is currently in production uh, as we speak right now in uh, Scotland, and it was only a matter of time. Last week they were dressing up sets and things like that, and just over it was actually last Friday they released very very uh, late in the evening they they released uh, the first shot of Leslie Grace in the Batgirl costume. It is very, very uh, Burnside. It's very Burnside. But it's interesting because the quote that uh, Grace used was specifically from Batgirl Year One, uh, leading us to believe that at least in some way this is going to have something to do with Batgirl Year One. Um, but there's there hasn't been a lot of interesting photos outside of the main release. Let's talk about the costume before I talk about some of the other stuff. Uh, the costume is purple. Um, weirdly enough, it has kind of a feel as if it's like a updated version of the, uh, the Batgirl, the Batgirl 66 costume where it has kind of the same color scheme. There's a lot of gold and yellow. And the only thing that I would say is the hair doesn't 
there's something about the hair, and I think it's because there's, there might be a wig involved. Um, originally, uh, I think it was DC Fandom, that, that mini panel that they had, they, she asked if she was going to be dyeing her hair red, and the director was like, oh, absolutely, and she was thrilled. And it, then she showed up on set, and there was pictures of her on set, and it didn't look like her hair was red. It looked like it was just like a dark brown um, and but in the costume, it looks like it is red. It just doesn't seem like it's the same red as what uh, you would expect Barbara Gordon to have. Either way, uh, the costume is it's very motorcycle esque. Uh, it looks like he, one of those. There was a I don't remember the name of the company. There was a company a couple years. This was well, probably ten years ago. That was creating like biker jackets. That had like a bat logo across the front that you would wear if you were more you were, you were riding a motorcycle, and I'll tell you what—that's exactly what I look what I see when I look at this. What do you guys think of the the Batgirl suit? Um, I I really like it. You know, it's it's I haven't really read much of the Burnside run, but I do like the suit design. Um, I think it's really cool, and I do like the kind of the motif from the 60s because i also like that suit as well i just like the purple um look to it i guess is the simple answer but the guess the thing that i kind of zeroed in on is i'm curious about you know what plot of this movie is or you know what this movie will look like because the logo is um you know they they announce it like keaton's in this and he's going to be your mentor or whatever um, the bat logo is a little different. It's kind of its own thing. It's kind of more inspired from, you know, like the Burnside look, it looks like. So it just makes me wonder what's going to be going on. Is she going to like cobble this together herself and it's her own logo um, at first? Or is this like some weird revamped hodgepodge universe that we're seeing where the, the logo is different than like the, you know, the yellow oval? Yeah, I mean, I... I don't think we know for sure, but I can. I have a pretty good feeling that it is going to be a hodgepodge universe, just based on everything we've heard about, you know, this movie and the and the Flash movie. As for the suit itself, I mean, um, I know it's got. You were saying that you that you liked it. Um, for me, it doesn't. It doesn't really move the needle either way, to be quite honest. Um, I do see that that it is kind of a blend of the Burnside look and Batman sixty six. Um, and I think I've mentioned in the past that <clears throat> while Batman 66 is a good product for its time, I'm not sure that um, it works quite as well uh, in, in the modern day. Um, to me, the suit kind of looks a bit, for lack of a better word, cheap. I, I just wish, like, perhaps I'm too accustomed to seeing uh, some of the more armored style looks that we've seen. But I think there's a good medium to strike. I think the, the BVS suit, for example, uh, Batman versus Superman suit. That Batman had was kind of like a mix between yes, it it could look like armor, but it also has that cloth aesthetic to it as well. Where this looks like a like a winter jacket has been you know fashioned into a, a suit. Um, I'm not too big a fan of the short cape, although like I know that has been a thing in other adaptations. Um, but I, I think I was kind of expecting to see like a longer cape, which would be I guess more practical for what it's used for in fighting. Um, and my concern, you know, just to go back to what Scott was saying about the logo being a bit different is I'm just looking at this picture. Um, I wonder about the tone of this film because the tone of Batman 89, I think is very different from the tone of Burnside and the the picture itself, like the, the setting that Batgirl is in is kind of like the typical dark Gotham look. And I, I just feel like 
the suit itself looks like it's kind of out of place in that kind of style. I agree. I think that's the, I, I feel as if we're seeing a Batgirl in Gotham, not in Burnside, but the suit obviously screams that it should be in Burnside. I think the problem is that there, and I said this, we, we talked about this last week when we were talking about our, our fears for this film in general, but the thing is when it comes to the Batgirl film, I feel like they're going to like take the little bits and pieces of stuff that people know are popular. You know, you know that the Burnside run has ha- has ha- has its fans. You know that there's the original Batgirl 66 fans. So you're going to get some elements of that. Um, uh, you, you incorporate Batman 89 into this and you've got to have it a, at least a darker tone. You can't have it just like you know, uh, you know, romantic comedy kind of feel at all, which I don't want either. But I, I don't know. It's hard to say because the problem is like if this suit that we're seeing is in fact like the suit that she puts together for herself and that's her first suit, I, I'm completely behind that aspect. And based off of the utility belt, it really just looks like a belt that she puts some little, you know, pouches on and things like that. And it just looks like it is hobbled together. And if that's really what they're going for, then I'm fine with that. But long term, this cannot be her suit. She can't realistically use this suit as her main bat suit, in my opinion. I just don't see it. Um, I would love to, like, if I was to pick a bat suit. That especially a recent one that I think was a really good design and really would work. I think the most the the best one that I remember is the the Sean Murphy redesign that they did for Rebirth after the Burnside run was over. Where the only thing I think that I did, the only thing that I didn't really like was the backpack aspect of it, where they had like a backpack that was underneath her cape. But the suit itself reminded me of Batgirl Year One, um, with the color scheme. The you know it had like the 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 longer cape than the Burnside run. I feel like the Burnside run, there really wasn't a whole lot. Like I'm trying to remember a lot of this, like the stuff that happened during the Burnside run. And I don't really remember her like in a lot of action. Yeah, like she she would find the occasional person she'd have to beat up or something like that. But it was like the the covers that featured her in the Burnside costume were just like her posing or her taking a selfie or, you know, it was like very like, hey, we're trying to be hip with the times kind of situation. And it really wasn't about who she is as a character. Now, that leads me to my next point, which is some of the set photos that have, you know, that have emerged based off of the fact that they're in the middle of filming. There's plenty of cameras out there, paparazzi who are snapping photos. And, Going back to the hair color, the the shots of Leslie Grace without the costume show her hair to be that brown, you know, that brunette color that I was talking about earlier, which makes me wonder if there's going to be a situation where she has red hair while she's in the costume, but not while she's out of the costume. And I feel like that is a bad idea because that's not really true to the character. Um, but at the same time, I also feel like what we the other there was a there was an image that released earlier today of her wearing like a pair of goggles it was like you know like night vision goggles or something like that and there really wasn't much to it she's in the exact same outfit so it wasn't like there was something different but let's be honest here if this character that we're seeing here was having to face off against firefly 
not Killer Moth. Let's be honest, Killer Moth. You know, you, you could a lot of people could take Killer Moth out, but Firefly. You know, and, and somebody the size of Brendan Fraser. Do you really think that she could take out somebody Brendan Fraser size that also wields a flamethrower and a jetpack? I mean, come on. I don't know. I don't really have much of a thought on it beyond that. I just would assume, you know, since it's more of the motorcycle style that I'm. Her bike is probably in it at some point, and I just assume it's just going to be her vroom vrooming around for a little bit. <laughs> I mean, I think I, I just don't know. Like, I'm looking at this the picture right now, and I'm just not sure what the suit is trying to do. It, you know, if you zoom in on, you know, just below the belt, it looks like there's pockets on the, like it looks like it's pants that have been uh, painted over. It looks like there's like a line for a pocket there. But I mean, the suit looks. There's some elements of it that are serious. Like, you have the, the grapple gun uh, holster there, I assume, on, on the thigh. And then you have the black gloves. And, and the cowl, I think, looks looks great, you know? Um, but And then you have elements that look kind of silly, which is, you know, that short cape. And the material of the cape in this picture, again, it's just one picture. And I don't think anyone should make any judgments or say they're not going to see the movie based on one picture. But just to me on this one picture, the, the cape material looks kind of cheap. Yeah, it looks, it looks like, like cosplay. Yeah, it looks like a, like a dollar store, you know, that fake silk thing that you get, whatever. You know, it's really cheap material. Yeah. Um, so I, ju- I just think that they could have done a better job or, or have a, more of an identity to the suit. Like, what is it actually trying to be? Yeah, because I think that so many times nowadays we see one of two takes. We see a movie that attempts to make it seem like they're hearkening back to the source material uh, instead of doing their own thing. And when they do that, the story doesn't really have like a direction. Um, you know, you, you have like elements of what you, you know, like somebody had like a, a big bucket of, of little pieces of paper of like, okay, so what, what can we put in this? Here's a bunch of ideas of what, you know, we think of as Batgirl. Uh, Burnside. Yes. Okay. Throw that in the bucket. Uh, 66 Batgirl. All right. Throw that in the bucket. Um, uh, let's see, purple, uh, uh, a full cowl instead of a domino mask. Throw all these stuff in there along with like some stuff like maybe some other redesigns like the Murphy redesign or you know elements from Gail Simone's like certain characters that maybe appeared in it or something like that. Or you throw in uh, Killer Moth or you know stuff like that. And then all of a sudden someone just starts, starts picking out individual little pieces and saying, okay, let's figure out how we can make that work in our film. And I I mean, like, I will say the cape looks horrible. It looks exactly like a cape that my daughter had that was a Batgirl role-playing set that was, I think, from DC Superhero Girls. It looks exactly like it. Um, the one thing that I will say looks good in comparison to everything else is the cowl. The cowl looks pretty cool. I like how it, like... You know, it's it it's it's different than what we've seen, let's say, on like Alicia Silverstone back in Batman and Robin. Um, but at the same time, like it fits well. I feel like it would be really cool if she could like somehow just take off the top part and it could become a domino mask if she needed it to. Just just an idea. I mean, just because it'd be different. I really hope that the hair is her hair and it's not like, oh, we're pulling the back roll or the Batwoman route and we're doing a wig underneath the cowl and that's why we're wearing the cowl so that way people can't figure out who I am. Because I feel like 
that's the wrong character, number one. And number two, I don't want that to be the case when it comes to this character. One of the, like, the, the absolute, like, super terrorist, like, uh, physical characteristics of the character is her red hair. So, like, that's one of the things I don't think you could kind of, like, go get away from. So, but yes, so that is the Batgirl, uh, that is the Batgirl suit. Uh, obviously, your own opinions, please share them. Uh, we'd love to hear what you guys have to say. Um, in general, um, I think a lot of people are enjoying it and liking what they're seeing. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that it does... When you look at it, you can see influences from the comics, and that's what I think a lot of fans are hoping for: is that there are actual influences when it comes to the comics from you know for, for this film. Considering it is coming from a writer who also did the Birds of Prey film, where there was good things and bad things in that film as well, which we've already talked about in the past. All right, so the next thing we're going to talk about is an article that popped up. Uh, the New York Magazine published an article. Uh, this was through Vulture, and there was a ginormous article talking about kind of like redefining Joss Whedon. And it's basically Joss Whedon coming out of wherever he's been hiding from, and he's kind of trying to reintroduce himself to society by making sure that people know that he's not, he's not such a bad guy as he likes to put it. Um, for those of you who are unaware, uh, just to give a little bit of a backstory on how we came to be talking about this, Joss Whedon in, uh, was, he took over for Zack Snyder after Zack Snyder had a uh, family, a death in the family. Uh, he took over for Zack Snyder on the Justice League film prior to its release. He ended up, uh, he was first brought in to, he was first hired, that is, to do rewrites for the film because Warner Brothers wanted him to kind of help make the film a little bit better because they had they had already tested the film and the film didn't test very well with audiences. So they brought him in based off of his experience working on the Avengers films that he worked on for Marvel. They brought him in to help with rewrites to like kind of help the film do a little bit better in the box office after Batman v Superman did not do as well as they anticipated. Then Zack Snyder had an unfortunate death in the family. He stepped away. Joss Whedon stepped in. They reshot a ton of stuff. Uh, Joss Whedon re-edited a bunch of the stuff. And then the film released in 2017, and it was basically a, a train wreck. And no matter which way you look at it, uh, anybody who's a Joss Whedon fan would have immediately said, well, he had it was too rough for him to work on, and this is what he could cobble together. Or we had the Zack Snyder fans who were like, well, Joss Whedon completely destroyed whatever was here. Okay, so then skip forward. Obviously, Zack Snyder gets the Snyder Cut released. That all happened. Um, one of the things that also happened was that Ray Fisher uh, accused Joss Whedon of racism on top of just uh you know abuse and belittling the actors and things like that and then there were some other claims from gal gadot who also said that he also did some some of that stuff and then there was people from outside of the justice league realm that also accused joss whedon of doing this stuff and then he kind of just disappeared for a long time and this article is just bringing him back into the viewpoint and he's kind of like this is his way of i guess defending himself so in the article itself he addresses some of the concerns when it came to the justice league film and said that 
exactly what we you know what I just said. He was brought in for rewrites. He took over the film, but his style of directing was very different than Zack Snyder's. Zack Snyder he encouraged the actors to like ad lib or improv, you know, not necessarily do the lines exactly as they were written. And Joss Whedon is the exact opposite. He wants them to read exactly what's on the paper. He wants them to do exactly what's on the paper. And that was already that was a clash between the the actors and himself right away. The Ray Fisher stuff. Ray Fisher claims that he reduced his role, and Joss Whedon's response to that was, "Well, I reduced his role because he's a bad." actor and he you know that's why i reduced it because the character in the film itself was not a great character it was not written very well for the film and ray fisher is not a great actor so that was his his take on why that happened uh there was some claims from the claims from gal gadot that he addressed where basically he chalked it up to she didn't her english isn't her first language so she didn't understand what i was saying and yeah so Let's just put it honestly, this, this this article did not really do what they were probably hoping for. This did not paint him in some sort of like good light that he could easily defend himself. That's not the case at all. Um, to be honest, I hope that this is the last time we have to talk about Justice League because I, while I know that there are fans of Zack Snyder's version of the film, and I'm sure maybe there's a couple people who enjoyed the very first version of the film from 2017. Personally, I don't think the film was great one way or the other. I think that it was a very specific viewpoint on characters and it was an interpretation of the characters that not a lot of people would agree is the best interpretation of those characters. So I, one for, I, for one, hope that we do not have to talk about this movie until we eventually get around to... Unfortunately, reviewing the Snyder Cut at some point in the distant future. Um, but this, what did you guys think of the, the Joss Whedon kind of defending himself? Did you think that what he was saying was <laughs> could have been true, or do you think that you know he's just digging himself a bigger hole by saying some of the stuff that he said? I. I would lean towards digging himself a bigger hole, and the pull quote I will use to address that or speak to that is when he's talking about how Gal Gadot misunderstood him, he says, English is not her first language, and I tend to be annoyingly flowery in my speech. And I feel like that right there is just, you know, it's it's, it's kind of a, it's it's a very bizarre excuse, you know, and she's like saying, oh, he threatened my career, you know, or whatever, and you know, and and to just pass it off by saying you over talk and you're very flowery and poetic with the way you talk. So, you know, she just had a really hard time on set understanding him when that doesn't seem to be the case with like anybody else on set because everybody's voiced their two cents, you know, like even Ben Affleck was like, uh, it was the worst experience of my life and it's why I don't want to do this anymore. So, you know, I feel like that part is probably the most telling to me and the thing I I very much zeroed in on. Yeah, so um, I read a couple of the aggregating articles that kind of summarized the main gigantic article on Vulture, and then I decided, you know what, I want to read the, the article on Vulture itself. And I got about halfway through. Uh, I, unfortunately, I've been too busy, and there's like a huge snowstorm here, so I haven't been able to read the full thing. But even from the 50% of the Vulture article that I have read, I have no idea why Joss Whedon would have agreed to do this because 
there in no way does this paint him in a positive light uh to me he comes off as like he's trying to like portray himself as like this tortured genius who's like you know everyone just doesn't understand like how brilliant i am and and he wants to portray like he he's going back to his like childhood and he's talking about that and he's talking about like all this he's he coined a, a term for what he's suffering from apparently he, he calls it like long-term post-traumatic stress. like i mean he's just inventing stuff to avoid taking responsibility for what he for what he said what he has done and there's numerous people i'm only halfway through the article but there's numerous people he has worked with who have a lot of the same complaints about this guy and i think it's a good reminder uh, to myself and I guess to everyone that like we don't know these people as much as you know we might like the art or whatever that they produce. We don't know who they are as, as individuals. And so I myself, I'm, I'm generally skeptical of when someone is very keen on accepting certain labels. Like Joss Whedon, I think he was very eager to portray himself as a feminist. It's fine if someone else says that about you. But he seemed very eager to take on that mantle and, and promote himself as such. And that, I think, is a, kind of a red flag to me. Um, yeah, I just, I don't know, like, why he would he would want to do this. I, it, there's nothing about this that makes me feel sorry for him. There's nothing about this that makes me think, oh, you know what, maybe he, he had a point. It's just, there's overwhelming evidence at this point that, uh, you know, he wasn't the greatest person. And, you know, there's definitely a lot of truth to what people are saying. Yeah, and I, I've read the majority of the article as well um, from on Vulture, and I think that for me it comes off as people do not enjoy working with him in general. However, he can be it can it can be not even accepted. It's it's like there are there's obviously been plenty of people. I mean, obviously Buffy the Vampire Slayer which is one of the series that he's best known for was around for a while. And clearly people like Sarah Michelle Geller, who worked on the show for a very long time were able to at least coexist with him. It wasn't like she maybe she didn't necessarily have to enjoy working with him, but she was able to do her job and she was able to get through it. I think that's what, what I get out of reading this article is that the actors that he works with that do not want to just go with the flow and however you want to take that you can, but who do not want to go with the flow that he's trying to like do. They're the ones who are having an issue with it. And they're the ones who are obviously the most vocal. When you look at Ray Fisher, Ray Fisher felt as if his role was being reduced and Joss Whedon did not like the fact that, uh, he didn't like the way the character was written. He didn't think the character was necessary. And he didn't think that Ray Fisher was a good actor. So, of course, he's going to minimize the role for Ray Fisher when he puts out his edited version of the film. That's what he's going to do because that's how he feels. Ray Fisher, on the other hand, in, you know, like in the article, it talks about how uh, Joss Whedon says, Well, I had respectful conversations with Ray about, you know, bringing, you know, do, doing justice for the character and things like that. And it ultimately just came out as that he clearly just cut him because he didn't like Ray Fisher. And I can't sit here and say 
one way or the other, because there's not a lot of like material in general of what to judge Ray Fisher on in general, because he was kind of cast out of nowhere as Cyborg. It wasn't like he had already done a bunch of other roles and he was a, a super established. He was very, it was very different than what we saw with like Marvel casting Black Panther. They had somebody who obviously had roles that were big enough for him to get the role of Black Panther, but not big enough to make him a giant star on his own. Ray Fisher just kind of like was cast and, you know, obviously there's not, there's nothing against casting like necessarily an unknown. I'm not saying he was an unknown, but casting someone who's newer to the, to the world of, you know, who this is going to be their role. That's really going to make them. I mean, look at Jason Momoa. He's done stuff before Aquaman, but he's, he's Aquaman. That's who he is. Gal Gadot. She's Wonder Woman. That's who she is. She was in Fast and the Furious before that. And it's not like that was a role that she was super well known for. She became, uh, you know, like established from her role as Wonder Woman. And I think that. You know, you can't say that about Ray Fisher. And I think the thing is, Ray Fisher also could have been, because he was newer to the industry, he might not have understood that there are some people who are just a pain in the butt to get along with. You know, when Ben Affleck is like, yeah, I didn't like working on the film, you know, he's been around for a long time. He's been doing movies for over 20 years. So, like, obviously, he's going to be well-equipped to deal with bad directors, good directors, and anybody in between because he's done that. He's done movies just because he's making a movie rather than just, you know, doing whatever he, you know, doing what he wants to do with who he wants to do. He's made some not so great movies with people he probably didn't care if he wanted to work with or not. And I think Ray Fisher was just newer. When you look at the Buffy complaints, the, I think it was Charisma Carpenter is her name. She's the one who made a lot of complaints. She, I don't know enough about the show to say how, you know, how important she was to the, the series or how established she was as an actress prior to the series. But like, obviously, when you voice concerns to somebody who's already got a giant ego, who already feels like they're very successful, they're going to tell you that you're wrong. That's what's going to happen. I mean, that happens at normal jobs, not just in Hollywood. And the difference is Hollywood, people have, you know, a nice little blowhorn that they can broadcast their their issues with more so than you can if you're at just like you work at the local fast food restaurant and you your boss is telling you to do something. You're like, I don't agree with that, but it's your boss. That's what you're supposed to be doing. That's just how it goes. I'm not saying that they can abuse you, but there's a difference between you know, some, you know, someone telling you you're not doing a good job and someone like just yelling at you, telling you that, you know, you're a piece of crap and things like that. And I think I'm not trying to defend Joss Whedon whatsoever. I think that, I think the problem is when you look at the two situations and yes, there has been people who have obviously said that he is difficult to work with, but most people are not saying that he's abusing people in general. He's, they're saying, well, outside, I should say, they're not, I, I can't say that because I, there has been other allegations against him as well. But when it comes to the, you know, as a director, is he abusive to the actors in a way that is, you know, harmful for the careers of the actors and stuff like that? I don't know that that's really been proven yes or no, regardless. You know, Joss Whedon was one element of the entire Justice League movie. He was brought in after the fact by higher executives and he was there to do a job. And unfortunately, if there was actors who expected it to be Snyder's way of doing things and it was different, there, you know, obviously there's going to be a clash. That's what's going to happen. So 
There was some interesting points at the end of the article about, well, is it possible that Zack Snyder, who obviously was was lobbying for a long time and really playing into this whole Snyder Cut uh, marketing thing that was like viral marketing, grassroots, whatever you want to call it, um, you know, he was really leaning into the fact that there were fans of his that were saying like, hey, we really want this, and he would feed them like little images and you know little comments and things like that. And the question is, is there a whole element of that side of it? Which I would love for someone to do an article about that and how that the entire you know Snyder cut thing happened, but it kind of let you know it kind of like fed into that unnecessary element that is the horrible side of fandom which is if you just complain enough and you harass people enough maybe they'll just give you what you want and that's a whole nother side of this but it's part of the larger the entirely larger the thing that i the reason i don't like talking about justice league yeah i think the one one thing that i would um make a distinction of like even reading with reading half the article is that there's a difference between someone who is abrasive and difficult to work with. And I think we've all worked with someone like that at some point or another, whether it be a boss or coworker or whatever. But I think some of the incidents, and I'm not, again, I'm not talking about the justice league stuff because as far as I've read the article, I haven't really got into the justice league stuff yet, but in his past shows, I think uh, there's a show called angel and like Buffy the vampire slayer or, and whatever there ha- there are numerous incidents where his behavior does become abusive like and just some examples where like he physically grabs like a production assistant and like in such a forceful way that she says that it left a mark and like there were like indents on her arm and she said you're she had to tell him that you know he was hurting her uh there was another incident as there was another incident where he was kind of like I mean, there was a there was a pregnant woman, and he called her fat, which I mean is just not professional, right? Like, in a, it's a workplace, um, and I think workers in that work workspace have a they have a reasonable expectation that they would be treated professionally, and I think that I think we'd all agree is unprofessional behavior. Now, the other stuff, yes, I mean, there's other stuff where it's just simply him being ab- abrasive and difficult to work with, and that is something that doesn't go into the realm of abuse but i think the issue is that there are incidents with this person multiple incidents with this person and other cast members of those shows have you know supported the people who have come forward with their claims uh, and so i think when you put it all together and we're, we're building a picture of what joss whedon is as as a manager in the workplace i think that's all relevant to the discussion yeah, I agree. And I think the thing is, overall, he probably should either stick to writing and then just send his stuff over and then stay away from the director side of it. Because I think it comes down to exactly what you said. When he is a manager, he's of, you know, whether it be a show or a film, he has done things that would not be, they're, they're not accept, they're not acceptable in, in today's world or in the world of 20 years ago when some of these shows were being made that he worked on. You know, that's the thing. And I think that it just comes down to maybe his best days are behind him, or at least in his head, the best projects that he's worked on are done. But I will say the one thing that kind of ties it back to our first topic is just imagine what would have happened if Joss Whedon ended up actually still on Batgirl because he was originally attached to that project at one point. So, all right. So our last topic of discussion is something that 
like I said, is going to be like a rant, but I I, I don't want to. I don't want to go overboard with my rant, but I, I probably will because let's be honest, I, this is what I do. Um, it's about creator comic creators leaving titles in the middle of a run, um, whether it be in the middle of an arc because that has happened or whether it be at the end of like an event that they're doing, but you can tell that it it's abruptly ending the story that they were telling based off of what takes place in the comics. And I'm specifically bringing this up because of a specific creator going by the name of James Tynan. He's a great writer. And I want to, I want to start with that by saying, I, I really do like his work. I've loved a lot of the stuff that he's done with the Batman universe, but he, there was something that just came out today. Um, that is, is very frustrating to me. So to give a little bit of backstory, Tynan has been in the Batman universe for quite some time. He basically was the pro, a protege of Scott Snyder. He uh, learned the craft of writing from Scott Snyder. He came into DC Comics. He worked on a couple of uh, smaller titles like Talon, Red Hood, and the Outlaws. He worked on backups for Snyder's Batman run, things like that. And... He's worked on Batman Eternal, Batman and Robin Eternal, where Snyder might have had the top tier, you know, the 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 marquee nameplate on the the title, but Tynan was right there below him, and Snyder always said in interviews that it was always Tynan who was coming up with these ideas for those two titles, and it was really his show, and and Scott was just along for the ride, so. That that's important to note. Well, there was a series that that Tynan was put on. It was Detective Comics, and at the time, it was a great time to, for him to come on because he was taking over the title, and he decided he was going to tell a story involving a lot of the members of the Bat family that were not appearing in their own solo titles. So we had Tim Drake, we had uh, Batwoman, we had we had. Uh, Obviously, Batman was was there as well, but we also had uh, Clayface was part of the group and Cassandra Kane, and it was interesting to see what they were doing with this because there was a lot of interesting stories to tell with some of these characters that weren't getting focus in other series. And randomly in the middle of his run, it kind of just abruptly ended. Not to say that it didn't end where like it was in the middle of an arc. The arc wrapped up, but it just kind of ended and you could feel like there was more there, but they moved on to a different thing. And of course it went into a really horrible run with some writers, but some other writers that uh, after Tynan left. But part of the reason why he left was because he was offered Justice League Dark. And at the time, he told fans that it was because this was like a dream project for him. He always wanted to do it, but there was no way he was going to be able to manage that on top of what all, all the other projects he was doing. He wanted to be able to do Just League Dark because it was his. It was a dream project for him. So he left Detective Comics. So like, while it's unfortunate that not everything that he did was able to get wrapped up, you know, it is what it is. You just kind of let it go and you move on. So then skip forward years later, he takes over the Batman title, the main title, the top tier title at DC Comics. That's the the book that, in my opinion, probably you're going to get the most amount of money for if you work on any book at DC Comics. This is the book you're going to make a lot of money on. And that's not to say that you that there obviously could be other titles. You know, some of the the um, mini series that are creator specific, like the metal books by Scott Snyder, those, those did well in sales and Snyder might have, might get a better cut of the, the proceeds from that because it is his own creation. 
But Batman is always the top tier book at the company. It always is. It's literally the top tier coming across the industry when they use it because they use it as a comparative for all the other books, or at least that's how it used to be when Diamond was in charge of the entire distribution of the comic market. So he comes on to Batman. He was originally supposed to be on Batman for a very short run. The run did very well, and they asked him to stay on, and he was thrilled. And not only was he going to stay on the book, but he was going to be on the book for the foreseeable future. He got super excited. He told fans that he was super excited about being on the title. This was a dream come true for him. He would have never imagined in his wildest dreams he would have ever been on Batman. We skip forward to, I think it was August of, of 2021, and randomly we find out that he's leaving the book in three months which was weird because he had you know we had we were about to start a fear a a giant event called fear state where there was a lot of things happening it was literally marketed as this event that was going to be telling a bunch of uh things that were going to change a lot of books we had hype about other titles coming like a backgirls title that he himself was talking about that was coming even though it had yet to be announced there's a lot of things going on. You could tell he was in the middle of like getting in the groove of what his Batman universe or his Gotham City would become. And then it was announced he was leaving the title and it was kind of like a wait what? And he, the the gist of why he left was a company by the name of Substack um, is putting together a bunch of stuff related to comics and they're trying to get into the comic publishing area where they are putting out comics and they had some money in place to basically court some really big uh, creators. So they actually courted Scott Snyder to do some stuff and Tynan, uh, they approached and said, you know, we really want you to do a bunch of stuff. Tynan has had a lot of luck with some of his creator owned series and those creator owned series have given him the, the, let's say the, freedom to do a lot of the things that he would he wouldn't be otherwise able to do in some superhero titles like Batman. And when Substack approached him and said, you know, we're going to give you a bunch of money, can you just do a bunch of create your own stuff? This of course was a dream opportunity for him. So he again um had to take this dream opportunity and had to leave the Batman title. Now, I don't know for sure how many comics he was actually selling. It's it's projected how many comics he was selling, but he was selling well. It wasn't like he wasn't selling well. The Batman title was selling well, and it was selling better than Tom King's uh, Batman was towards the end of his run. So it was clear that what Tynion was doing was accepted by a large number of fans. There's no question about that. Um, I can't blame somebody for wanting to take a bunch of money to do something that they truly want to do. I can't do that whatsoever. But the catch, of course, is that you know he had to leave the Batman title because he was going to be doing a bunch of these creator-owned series for Substack. That's fine. He promised that he was going to finish his Joker story, which I could appreciate because at least that didn't end up, uh, you know, that could have ended up way worse. We still have to see the ending in a couple of months here, but we could have gotten a really bad situation where he didn't end up finishing up the, the run on Joker, which would have been a bad idea. So at least we have that. So I can appreciate the fact that he agreed that he was going to do that. Conveniently today, DC Comics announced through an exclusive with the Hollywood Reporter that they are bringing a they're 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 trying to do some new stuff with Sandman, and the first title that they're doing is going to be done by none other than James Tynan. And of course, 
he says that you know this is a dream project and um, it has been brought to my attention because when he went to Substack, uh, one of the things that he did was you can pay for like a subscription kind of price and you have access to all his creator own comics through Substack. But one of the things that interested me at least was that he was doing these articles called Thinking Bad Thoughts, which was like an uh, it was basically analyzing his time on the Bat books in general. And I subscribed with the intent that I thought this was going to be an ongoing thing. I must not have read some of the earlier newsletters that said that he was only going to be doing a certain number of these these uh, articles talking about his time on the Bat books because I thought, well, he could easily talk about his detective run and what he planned on doing and this, that, and the other. And this is a way to get Bat fans to not only subscribe but also to check out his other stuff. And it's a win-win for him and Substack and all of that. And it's like cross-promotion kind of thing. And he had said in one of the early newsletters that he didn't want to be doing superhero books because superhero books were very constrictive. And that's why he wanted to do more creator-owned stuff. And when this announcement came out, I made a big deal on our staff Discord about, I can't believe this is happening again. He, you know, he had this project that... He had, and he kind of left it. He left us readers hanging in a way because a lot of things didn't get resolved, just like the same thing that happened on Detective Comics. And now suddenly he has the ability to come back and do the Sandman title, whether or not it's the same grind of being, uh, you know, every month or whatever. I don't know the parameters of how often this book's coming out, but it's like, it's kind of like, it feels like I'm getting duped. I'm getting duped out of the fact that like he was on this title. I, I truly supported what he was doing. I enjoyed what he was doing. And this happens. And I say this for Tynan, but this is true of a lot of different creators. You either have, it's always like, it seems like over the last decade or so, you have these situations where it's one of two situations. You have a creator who's on a title. Uh, they uh, eventually get burnt out and DC takes them off the title and it just is like, well, that's it. And it doesn't ever feel like they've wrapped up a lot of their stuff. Or the other side of it is that DC takes them off in the middle of them doing whatever they were going to do, like what happened with Tom King. Um, or you have a creator who just is like, I have to, I, I can't, I can't do this anymore. And they don't wrap up anything. And you'll be lucky if you even get a, you know, some sort of like final issue talking about how they're no longer dealing with this or that, or, you know, they're moving from this area that for some reason this creator had to move that character to, but now they're kind of stuck there and nobody else is there and it's not going to make sense for anybody else. You know, it's very rare that we even get any sort of conclusion to that. Um, so personally, it is annoying when this happens. I don't, you know, and I say this as a fan, not as like a, this is not criticizing Tynan because if opportunity presents itself, you're obviously going to take the opportunity. I don't fault him for that. What I fault him for is that like that, that over hype and under delivery. So I have a lot of complicated thoughts on this. I'm trying to like put it all together. Um, you know, I also really like Tynan. Uh, you know, his detective comics run was probably one of my favorite Batman runs. You know, it's up there for me with all the stuff I've read. So, you know, even with the, the a lot of the stuff that was left unanswered, like who the first victim was, um, you know, and I, and on the one end, I can't, you know, I would agree. I can't blame him for, you know, jumping ship and, 
and and moving around, especially since there was a newsletter. It wasn't the one he released today. It was the one he released earlier this week, I think. The whatever the previous one was, where he talked about his writing process, and he was talking about how he always had a really hard time with planning, and he's more of a sprinter, last minute deadlines are due. I got to get something in, kind of guy, which kind of leaned into this idea I had of him as a person, which you know. Again, if James Tynan ever hears this, totally love your work, but you know he comes across as kind of flighty. I guess would be a way I would put it, where it's just kind of very you know spur of the moment and kind of sporadic and just you know it, and it comes through you know especially when he's leaving a title like his Batman book, the Fear State book. You know it really shown there where a lot of the. Um, Tynan overwriting kind of comes into the play and he's just kind of rushing to get things done because he's got to move on and jump to do whatever it is he's going to do. But I guess what I'm getting at is as much as I don't like it and it frustrates me, frustrates me with Tynan and it also gives me pause knowing that he is writing this Sandman book and maybe I'll wait for the graphic novel or like the trade to come out instead of like buying it issue by issue because you know it is a concern that like what if he starts a story and midway through something happening, he's like, oh, I gotta go, you know, and, and runs off to something else. And now we're left with like half a story. I don't want to be invested again and have to, you know, either cancel the title or just deal with it. Um, you know, I guess the problem really is top down. Like I know editorial does give direction and make decisions on what creators can and can't do. I mean, famously that we always talked about like Alfred dying, you know, and that's that's one of the more recent ones that was like a bigger, you know, pivot from editorial. What they wanted, they wanted to keep him dead. Um, but you know, really, editorial in these situations should come in and find someone who's willing to, you know, figure out a way to wrap up the current story or do what they have to to where it makes some kind of sense. It's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be the best ending, and no one's expecting that. But just someone who's dedicated to like at least pushing the storyline along to a somewhat more satisfying conclusion and have, you know, an editorial staff that keeps tracks of the track of these things and tabs on, you know, some of the major plot points, just so, you know, you don't have this weird abandoned ship, you know, about face on your title where it's just like, well, that's it. Now we're going to start with something completely different. That's going to go, you know, in a direction that this whole arc that's been building for several years wasn't heading towards. So I guess that's, you know, I like Tynan, but really, you know, it seems like it's more of an editorial issue. So I'm going to come at it from a bit of a different direction. Um, and the reason for that is because, as you all know, but I, I don't think the listeners might know, I'm a bit of a, a, a lapsed comic reader. And the reason for that, and I, I should say, I was reading comics religiously from like the start of rebirth i was basically reading every book in the dc line uh from like the start of rebirth until the the point where i really and i should be fair uh part of it is because i'm in the middle of doing a master's degree and you know working and so don't have as much time but part of it is i felt really let down by what happened with the tom king batman run uh in that he didn't get to finish and I was really invested in that as a, as a fan, as a consumer. I was invested in that storyline. And I was invested because DC promised us that we would be getting this 100-arc storyline. We would be getting these two major changes. 
And that didn't end up happening at the end. And, you know, it sort of got tossed aside. Um, and as a consumer, as a fan, I sort of noticed that this has become a trend for whatever reason. And then there are different reasons. Uh, Dustin, you pointed out that, uh, you know, Tom King was more of an editorial de decision from DC, whereas, you know, James Tynion leaving is more of his personal decision. But I would say that lately, DC has promised a lot of great things, but hasn't always delivered. Uh, going back to Doomsday Clock, for example, you know, that was supposed to be a big thing um, that never really finished on time. Uh, what about like the, the promise of Rebirth? That, that kind of shifted, you know, after uh, a lot of early success. In the Superman line, Bendis was billed as like this huge addition that was supposed to change things. I mean, did he really deliver on that? I don't know. I, I mean, for me, I would say I don't think so. Um, and so, you know, in, he even Bendis has left sort of threads up in the air, like with the Leviathan storyline and, and all that. Like there's stuff that's just floating around that never gets tied up. And so as a consumer, um, you know, the, the truth, I think, and I'm saying this as a fan of comics, is that if you read for many years, to some extent, you've read all the storylines. So you're going to see repeats of these storylines over and over again. And that's fine. But on the rare occasion where you do get something fresh, something new, something that is exciting, you want to see that through to the end. And I think that's what you're talking about with, with Tiny in here. And I think that's what I've sort of felt cheated out of in the last few years with a lot of the, the DC comic uh, lines that are just kind of changing or ending or, or whatever. And I wonder, like, from their perspective, why are they not able to keep continuity? Because I think that's that's just a, a good business move. Um, and so, like, I mean, I guess that's more of a rhetorical question, but I'm just, I'm sitting here thinking, like, there's just so much potential that's just being lost constantly. Absolutely. My, and I, I think the biggest thing for me is when you look at some of these stories, the fact that they have marketed them so heavily and then they fall apart so badly by the end. Doomsday Clock is a perfect example. That title was, you know, this defining moment in DC Comics. You're crossing over the DC Universe with the Watchmen stuff. You're combining this stuff. You're, you're showing that there's, you know, repercussions that are going to be taking place. There's things that are coming out of that new, you know, that story. And then it got delayed and it got delayed and it got delayed and it got delayed. And it was like, they couldn't stop everything else from happening after doomsday clock was supposed to end. So instead they just start releasing it ahead of time. Or you have a different situation where, you know, I will say Tom King's run. I, there's a lot of things that I was, I, I don't like, but as a overall run, I didn't mind it. I mean, like looking back on it, there was definitely some elements that I was like, "Yeah, I don't, I don't really know why they did this or why he did that." And I hate the fact that he killed Alfred, not just because he killed Alfred, but because it didn't, it didn't have any like real feeling towards it. It's just kind of like it happened, and you're just kind of like, "Well, that's it. There must be a swerve. You're, that's what you're expecting," because it just didn't really feel like there was anything. There wasn't. It didn't feel like it was that moment that. I mean, he hyped up for ages talking about how there was going to be this continuity-defining moment in his run and all of that. And I think the problem is DC gets so ahead of themselves with marketing that they they, they cannot 
for whatever reason, and this is proven because they've had so they've gone through so many different editors over the last like five to ten years. Um, you know, they they are horrible about execution when it comes to like they market it, they say it's gonna be this amazing thing, and then somehow it all falls apart. I mean, case in point, just as a, a more recent uh, situation, you had Infinite Frontier happen just over a year ago. After or just under a year ago, when Future State or uh, yeah, when Future State was done with its little two month little break that they did, uh, Infinite Frontier happened. There was all this stuff that was supposed to like fall out of Infinite Frontier, whether or not it had to do with the five G rumors or not, or there was something that obviously happened differently because Dan DiDio was fired. That's besides the point. The point is Infinite Frontier was like this was supposed it was billed as this like this continuity defining moment and it and i honestly outside of the events of the first issue that happened where it was you know dealing with some stuff in in gotham or it was like number zero there was nothing in that book that really mattered to me you know i did not even know that thomas wayne was not still sitting in Arkham Asylum. I, you know, like it was, I just did something recently where I was looking into Thomas Wayne's history because they announced a Flashpoint, uh, Flashpoint Beyond series. And I'm like, well, that's weird. I wonder if it's the same Thomas Wayne that was in Tom King's run that we know that was locked up in Arkham. And then I'm going back through and I'm reading and checking out some of the books that we don't typically cover on the site. And I find out that he was in Infinite Frontier. His body was like, taken out of uh, or teleported outside of Arkham before the explosion and he ended up on Earth-23 and he's been working alongside a different Superman and he comes to realize that he made this giant mistake and now he's in Justice League Incarnate like that just launched ages after the Infinite Frontier wrapped up and I'm just sitting there thinking like if anybody's actually invested in this character, one, do they even know this character has is got stuff going on with them, number one? Number two, why did Justice League Incarnate, which was spinning out of Infinite Frontier, why did it take like six months before it debuted? You know, you had the Batgirls. Uh, this is another one. The Batgirls, Stephanie Brown and Cassandra Cain take over the role of Batgirl. That happened ages ago and yet they talked about how they were going to do something with the characters they did they hinted at the fact that there was going to be their own series and then it finally comes out like well over a year after the fact it's almost like you know like let's hype let's talk about this let's get people excited about this and then let's 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 just wait until the hype dies down before we actually release it like Batgirl's coming out I don't really feel like there was any hype about it at all like they talked about they announced it three months prior to the book coming out like they always do with all the solicitations but there was no hype in in december about the book releasing and that's unfortunate because i think as bat fans that was something we wanted to see but it was something we wanted to see like a year ago or a year and a half ago you know not something that we wanted to wait a year and a half to see and i don't know if that's because editorial is in this idea that oh we have to have like we have to have a better idea of like getting these things constructed, uh, making sure that we have a lot of issues in the can or what. I don't know what it is, but I've been noticing that, that ever since last year, it seems like whenever there's a, a something that's going to take place after another event, there's like this huge wait that you have to wait for. And perfect point is 
uh, Batman Urban Legends. You know, we have all these little mini stories that are focusing on certain characters. And I don't know how many of these 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 stories say like uh, to be continued in some series that we have yet to announce, but is coming sometime in the future. And it's like, are we actually going to get that? There was an Outsiders once hinted. There was um, a Batman Beyond, which is supposedly still coming in April. You know, there's a lot of different stuff that is spun out of Urban Legends, but nothing ever gets announced when they're saying something's going to come. And it, to me, it just feels like marketing is pushing something so hard that by the time they actually can deliver it, it falls so flat. I mean, I don't know. I mean, not knowing how the inner workings, you know, operate, it's hard to guess because, you know, obviously they do have a really sound marketing team. Like, they're good at their job, you know, in terms of, like, getting up the hype. That's true. It it seems like, you know, I guess the thing I always wonder is, like, is it because there's no one really at the wheel or is it like a too many cooks in the kitchen kind of situation where like they hype up like this is going to be the defining, you know, this is the book, you know, like Doomsday Clock. This is going to change everything forever or like going back to Rebirth, like Rebirth is going to be this fundamental change. And then, you know, you get all excited. You're like, yeah, that was great. And then nothing. Yeah. Just, we just wait around and then Heroes in Crisis comes out and does something that nobody wants. And it's you know that was that yeah and also like i mean from the just you know from the fans perspective like the fans shouldn't be left to like figure out like what's going on in dc's internal business structure that's causing all this i mean from their perspective they're just concerned about like why am i not getting what i'm promised when i'm promised it and i think there seems to be an issue also with you know creators and i've heard a lot of creator interviews where even the ones who are doing books with DC, and and this is about like the, the Black Label um, line, which was supposed to be creator-focused, give them more freedom. A lot of people who are, are doing books there are, are, are complaining about it, even if it's, you know, slightly or whatever. And you can say, oh, that's just creative people, you know, complaining, they'll, they'll do that. And there might be some truth to that as well. But when you zoom out and you look at all the things that are going on, it really seems that DC is not able to keep any sense of continuity with their creators, with their stories, and that creates problems because, like, I want to be reading all a lot of these stories that I was promised. I was excited for a lot of them, and if I don't get them, then I'm just like, why should I keep paying money for this? Why should I keep investing myself emotionally and financially into this when there isn't going to be a payoff? And you know, I have reviewed some Scott Snyder books and I think he has done some great work and I, I also think that he's done some work that I'm not a fan of but I think he's sort of like the Pied Piper for this because there's so many things that he 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 does and then he says oh this is the point of this is that it's going to lead to something yep. big it's, it's the next thing the point of this is that it's going to lead to the next thing but at some point you have to make the point of something what it actually is like, you know it can't just be about something else and and that becomes a, a problem when you never actually finish the next thing and you move on and all these threads and you know we've talked through numerous examples already i just i mean tiny and going to substack and then doing this it shows to me that there was a price for him and that dc maybe if they had got to the negotiating table and maybe been willing to pay that price they could have retained him and could kept this continuity and that i think 
would have engendered a lot of goodwill with their consumer base. And you can't put a monetary value on that, you know, and I'm, it would have been financially profi- profitable anyway. So, I mean, I, I know I sound a bit frustrated with this, but I mean, it just it is what it is, I guess. Yeah. And, and it really is one of those situations where you I, I have to wonder you know, they're, they're obviously a comic couple company has to sell comics. They have to. But I think that there has been such a huge focus on, like you, like was said, there, you know, one event leads to the next event, leads to the next event, leads to the next event. That cannot always be the case. You know, there's no reason you can't have events. There's no reason you can't have in the, the sub universes, like the Batman's books or the Superman titles or the Justice League stuff or, you know, whatever. You, you It's not to say you can't have a smaller events, but everything's always about what giant events happening. Every year, there's something giant happening. And... It always either disrupts something that's happening in other books that it shouldn't be disrupting, or it's or or it's it's completely being ignored by books that you would think, oh well, why isn't that book being included in this if it's as big of an event as it is? I mean, I, I just think about like some of the the major things that have happened over the past, like just the last five years, you know. There's been stories that kind of ignore certain aspects of like these big events. And it's like, well, do those big events really make it that big of a difference if this is being ignored? You know, I, there's a problem fundamentally with the, the fact that there's, they're not following continuity across everything. But I understand that you have to keep things separate. But the solution back in the day was, well, then keep things separate and have them be their own thing. You know, Batman might appear in the Justice League, but he's not like the focus of the Justice League stories necessarily. He is the, you know, he's one of multiple characters there who is helping do whatever. But that's not taking away from him being in a Bat book or, you know, in Batman or Detective Comics or whatever other title he's appearing in. You know, that's not taken away from that. And I think when it comes to a lot of these stories, I feel like. DC and I and this could be true of Marvel too. I honestly don't know because I don't read Marvel comics to sit there and say, well, this is a problem across, you know, multiple companies or whatever. But when it comes to these characters, you you have to have like a set plan. I think about how when when the when the website started, when the comic cast started, the TV podcast was around all in the early 2008, Grant Morrison was on Batman, he was doing his own thing and it's it was very much like what Scott Snyder was doing on Batman, where it was telling his own story. It didn't necessarily have to do with the other stuff. At the time, you had other titles that were being, or other characters that were being focused on in their own solo titles. Everybody had their own little corner of Gotham. Everybody had their own little aspect of what was going on. And it didn't necessarily always have to interact with each other. They came together to interact with each other when it was relevant or it was a big thing happening within the group of books. And that makes sense. And that's what I feel like one of the reasons why I was so excited about Titan taking over Batman was he is so laser focused on including the Bat family and not just Batman. Snyder was all about Batman. Tom King was all about Batman. They weren't really as excited, or well, Batman and Catwoman, that is, but most of them were not really concerned with the other members of the Bat family or the other, you know, outside the villains. They didn't they didn't really take a lot of time to like develop the other elements that are in Gotham City, like his allies, his, you know, his sidekicks, his 
his love interests, all of that. That wasn't really something that they a lot of them focused on. And Tynan does a really good job of like focusing on a lot of that aspects. And that's why I was so excited, and that's why I'm so disappointed that he ended up leaving the series because now Batman. I, I'm not saying I, you know, Josh Joshua Williamson can't do something with the title, but I don't think he's even set up to do something with the title. I think he's there as a placeholder, which is unfortunate for him because he has done a lot of really good things with the Flash books, at least from what I've heard. That he probably could do something if given the right amount of time, but he kind of just kind of stepped in because Tynion was leaving, and that's you know he was available kind of situation. And right now, Detective Comics is telling a really good story, and hopefully, you know, that can carry on past the. Shadows of the Bat uh, event that's happening, but you know, I, I I wonder about the future of the industry when stuff like this continuously happens. You have these insanely large delays. You have books that are marketed as one thing turn out to be something completely different. You have uh, books that um, that 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 you know the creators are leaving and they're not wrapping up the stuff that they're the, the, the readers are invested in you know a book like batman if Tynion came to dc and was like listen i'm gonna go to substack because they're offering me a boatload of money and dc was like okay you're doing really well you're selling better than uh tom king was selling uh yeah sure go ahead We're, we'll let you go that just doesn't seem right and i understand that that also happened to be around the same time that dc was adamant about well not dc in general but the comic industry was getting rid of exclusive contracts with a lot of creators. It wasn't as profitable for them to make exclusive contracts. And that, that becomes a problem when you have a top-tier creator leaving to go somewhere else because he's going to get paid more money. But that's what happens. So while it comes off as frustration against Tynan, it's not really on Tynan. It's really against the industry as a whole because this keeps happening and it's not just singularly on Tynan. It's just the the situation that brought this up in my mind was Tynan and the Sandman book that was announced and the fact that it's literally just months months ago that he had to leave Batman because he was going to do his own thing and now he's right back in the fold at DC Comics doing something that he probably is getting paid pretty well to do so there's that uh, I, I also want to make a point about events you know you mentioned events and how every year there's a big event and that's absolutely true and i think one of the reasons that they do that is because it's something that's very easy to market to people hey everyone look at this is a big event happening you want to be a part of it you want to read it um but i think the problem with that is that it's a very short-term gain and 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 the reason for that is because events need to feel special. Events need to feel like there's there's big stakes to them. Now take take Gotham City for example. How many times have we seen in the last few uh, Batman runs has Gotham City been completely devastated? We got um, Scott Snyder did it. He did it like multiple times in his run. He did the Court of Owls, which like was like a good story. But like obviously it was Gotham wide. There was tons of like devastation, etc. Then he did it again with Bloom, and then he did. And then after that, there was the Monster Men, um, and then after that, there was City of Bane, and then after that was Joker War. Joker War. And so the the similarity between all of these is that there's this Gotham wide terror and chaos. And as a reader, if you see that over and over and over again it starts to, you start to become desensitized to it. And it starts to lose, you start to lose a sense of stakes. It doesn't seem as serious because, hey, you just saw it before. You've seen it multiple times. And so I think 
events like that need to be something that's really meticulously planned. It needs to be. It needs to feel rare. It needs to feel like really dramatic. Like, oh my God, this is happening. You know, something like No Man's Land, I think, is a, is a good example of that. Where like it was planned. It was, you know, across different um, se- different series, and there was a sense of stakes to it. And obviously, I wasn't a reader when it was coming out at the time, but just reading it in, in hindsight or in retrospect, it kind of feels that way to me. And new events where it's just back to back to back of the same thing, I just don't get the, the same sense of stakes there. I think on my end, it causes, you know, burnout, I think would be the big thing. You know, and going back to a comment you made earlier, Dill, about um, Scott Snyder specifically about feeding into one thing to the next to the next to the next to the next you know he did no justice and then he did the justice league run that was really long and you know we had lex luther i can't have his body merged with something or whatever but anyways the point being by the end of that run when it ended and it fed into something else and it, it ended on this note teasing another series i was so burnt out by this this road going there you know, I wanted to be invested and stay invested that I just ended up just selling that whole run I had and just got rid of it. I'm done. I haven't touched the Snyder book since, you know, and I'm kind of like, I waver on that with other things with these, you know, with, with events that keep on perpetually going, you know, and don't have a definitive end. So, you know, it just gets tiresome after a while. And yeah, there are no stakes anymore because the world is always ending. It's true. I mean, it really, and it is burnout. It really is burnout because it gets tiresome when you have so many big, giant, you know, Gotham shaking, you know, the foundation shaking of Gotham events that happen so frequently. Fear State just did the exact same thing as everything else that you just mentioned, Otto. I mean, it, it just, it is... Sometimes you just have to tell stories. You don't always have to have it to be some giant event. I understand that as a company, it's easy to market. But like you said earlier, it is a short-term game. It is absolutely a short-term game to sell an event. And when the event's over, what happens? I mean, yeah, sure, you'll be able to package real nicely some trades or some you know hardcover collected editions that include all the books that were included in that event. But what happens to all the other stuff that happens outside of those events? I mean, that's the problem. Like it came, it, it you know, when No Man's Land happened, it was such a big event because events weren't really that big of a thing back then. You know, it took place over all the different series, and then you look at what happened during the New Fifty Two, and every time Snyder did any sort of event, you had to have that situation happen over and over again. So that said, you know, that I'll, we'll leave it at that. But uh, overall, uh, there's a lot of different things. We'd like to hear your guys' uh, take on this stuff. If you have comments about things that uh, you're annoyed by when it comes to comics or the films or television or anything like that, be sure to let us know. Send us an email at tbu at thebatmanuniverse.net or leave your comments wherever you're listening to this podcast, and we will you know, talk about those in the future because it's one of the things we enjoy talking about. Uh, outside of that, be sure to check out our website, thebatmanverse.net, for all kinds of news related to movies, TV, merchandise, video games, comics, and everything else related to the Bat fandom. We have tons of other podcasts and original content over on our site as well that you guys can check out. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, uh, Instagram, Discord, all of our social links can be found over on the website at the top of the page. Outside of that, 
Thank you so much for listening to this. If you could do us a quick favor and just head over to iTunes, give us a review uh, with the reboot. Now a couple months in, it'd be nice if we could get a couple of new reviews for the podcast to kind of boost the show and get people to know that we are back and uh, better than ever, hopefully, according to hopefully some good reviews. So with all that being said, for Scott, Otto, and myself, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the TV Podcast. We'll see you guys next time. 